Hey, Vetfolio Voice family, welcome. This episode is sponsored by Hills and features Dr. Cody Dressler here to give us some insight into shelter medicine and the importance of proper nutrition in a shelter setting. What is a shelter? This seems like a simple question, but the broad scope of what can be considered a shelter was a little mind-boggling to someone without much experience in that arena. Given the broad definition of shelter, this of course means that feeding and nutrition practices vary widely. Dr. Dressler and I dive into why proper nutrition is important and how feeding techniques and nutrition can not only keep animals healthy, but reduce stress and provide significant environmental enrichment in what can be a really stressful environment. Dr. Cody Dressler is a clinical assistant professor at Kansas State University. She earned her DVM degree from Kansas State and went on to complete a shelter medicine internship at Charleston Animal Society in Charleston, South Carolina. Dr. Dressler currently teaches the shelter medicine course to fourth-year students and shelter basics, medicine and management to second-year students at Kansas State University. Her research interests include high-quality, high-volume spay-neuter techniques and population management. She also has a passion for growing the field of shelter medicine through community engagement and education. Let's go ahead and jump into our episode. Well, for this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Cody Dressler, and we're going to talk about nutrition and shelter pets. And full disclosure, we had a little bit of a conversation before actually getting together to make this recording. And just our brief discussion ahead of time was really eye-opening. So I'm so excited to have her here to kind of bring this talk to life. Dr. Dressler, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, with shelter pets, a lot of times we'll see them for like their free exam and many times they'll come with a little bag of food and it's relatively decent quality food most of the time. So I think I take for granted nutrition knowledge in shelter, just in shelters in general. So can you speak to that a little bit as far as basic nutrition knowledge in a shelter setting? Yeah. So I'm first going to answer this question by clarifying, what are we talking about when we talk about a shelter? Because I think that'll help us answer your question. So when I say shelter, a lot of people comes to mind a brick and mortar building. It's the local shelter where you go look for strays, where you might adopt an animal. And that's very true. But there's also nonprofits there's hybrids of municipal shelters and nonprofits. We start getting into the realm of rescues, which might not have a physical space to call a shelter. And then we start getting into ones that are certainly out there, but in less numbers like sanctuaries, TNR programs, transport programs. For our purposes, those would all be classified as shelters because in all of those realms, we're talking about people that are feeding a large group of animals, usually. So thinking of shelter as a big, broad scope like that, you can recognize there's a lot of people coming to the table. So our knowledge of nutrition in a shelter setting is incredibly variable depending on which location we're talking about. So, you know, and and it's such a broad umbrella there. I don't know that I ever really thought about that. You know, I think of like the shelter, we have the Humane Society and we have animal services in my area. And then, you know, maybe there's some private rescues or something like that. But I don't know that I appreciated before what a broad umbrella can can really encompass what's considered a shelter. Yeah, exactly. And so with with that comes the 
broad scope of knowledge, right? You have people that pretty much everybody involved in shelter has a huge heart. They're super compassionate for these animals, but their knowledge background, especially on what at first seems like such a small topic like nutrition can be incredibly variable. Maybe they're a local rescue group that doesn't take in a ton of dogs and they're used to feeding their own pets. And that's, that's where they gain their, their foundation all the way up to these large humane societies, these nonprofits that have veterinarians on staff. And then they have a very clinical background in nutrition. I, that's always been something that I, I'm kind of, I'm showing my ignorance here a little bit that I've kind of wondered about as far as staffing veterinarians, because, you know, many of my shelter encounters have been through veterinary medicine. So there's either veterinarians employed or veterinarians that are rotating through, but it sounds like you're saying that's not always the case when we're talking about shelters. No, no, no. That's, those are definitely the shelters that are going to be more high resourced. In shelter medicine, we live off three main resources, time, space, and money. So those shelters that are going to have a lot more resources are going to be much more likely to have staff veterinarians, but there are so many shelter models, probably the majority of shelter models out there that just, it, it cannot sustain a veterinarian on staff. Now it's certainly since we've become a board certified, we can get board certified in shelter medicine. It is a specialty amongst veterinary medicine. We've gained a little bit more traction in shelters. Uh, more shelters are recognizing how a veterinarian can help and everything that we bring to the table because it's such a nuanced piece of veterinary medicine. So you're getting to see more and more veterinarians joining shelters and shelters trying to get them, but it's still the majority of shelters are pretty small and just can't justify having a veterinarian on staff. Wow. And to think of, you know, the, this multitude of animals that are being taken care of in this capacity and, and thank goodness that they are like, they need this care, but you know, of course they need resources as well, medical and nutritional. So along those lines, you mentioned time, space, and money. I think yep. that's a perfect way to break it down. <laughs> um, and thinking about feeding all of these animals that we're taking care of, whether it's a small scale or a large scale operation, it's still going to be quite a feat to get everybody fed. So what resources are available for shelters to feed their rescues? Yeah, there's a few resources available for shelters. So shelters dealing with really large populations might choose a commercial program. So something like Hills Food Shelter Love, which has, you know, the same quality food that you get off the shelf, but at a highly discounted rate for shelters. And then other shelters might go just off the shelf. So from the local pet store or whatever is available in their community. And then some shelters, usually these are ones with smaller populations of animals, they're using completely donated stock. So whatever their community is willing to provide is what they're feeding their animals. Wow. Um, and you mentioned the Hills Food Shelter Love Program. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Yeah. So that uh, program feeds all dogs and cats within the shelter at a really discounted rate. So it's, it's really nice for those shelters that have super large populations. The program also provides the shelters that they work with small sample size bags of Hills Pet Food to send home with adopters. Any shelter can contact your Hills Territory manager about seeing what kind of benefits that program might give them. And if you don't know who that is, um, you can call Hills Veterinary Consult Service to figure out who that manager is. But it's a really nice program because you can feed such high quality food that we we rely on Hills a lot in veterinary medicine. So feed those high quality foods at a really good price. 
Absolutely. And so important to, you know, be able to get these, these pets who are in a really stressful environment and going through so much, you know, at least maybe we can take nutrition out of the equation there and make sure that they're on a high quality food while we address everything else and hopefully get them into a home. Exactly. You mentioned that now you can get board certified in shelter medicine. Mm -hmm. And with that being the case, I understand that there are guidelines, nutritional guidelines put together by the American Association of Shelter Vets. Can you elaborate on what those say about feeding shelter pets? Yeah, so there's it's it's a fairly small section. So the Association of Shelter Veterinarians, they put together the first guidelines some time ago, and now there's a new guidelines as of 2022. So it's kept a lot of the same model as the original. Like we mentioned before, shelter is such a broad spectrum. So the guidelines can are meant to be a little bit vague so that they can apply to all those different situations. But there are some things that are hard musts, right? So that's kind of the way the guidelines breaks things down is a shelter must be doing some things. They should be doing some things. And ideally, they're doing other things, right? So some of the musts that the ASV guidelines uh, says shelters need to be doing is that food is consistent with nutritional needs, health status, and species of individual animals. Food has to be clean, of course. That's a must. One big one for me is food intake must be monitored daily. And then in addition to that, we must be monitoring body condition and hydration status. So those are all, I think everybody can recognize that's pretty darn vague. There's a lot of different ways to achieve those things, but those are things that are oftentimes overlooked, especially if you don't understand the significance of what happens when those conditions aren't being met and a place where we can really make improvements in shelter. We talked earlier about shelters who are working off of donated food. And so, you know, a shelter must feed food that's consistent with, you know, the pet's nutritional needs. Well, you know, that can be the case that we're feeding, you know, an an adult dog food, let's say. But if we're working off a donated food, I would imagine like the brand, the type, the ingredients, you know, everything could probably change on a regular basis, which would not not be ideal for these poor critters that are like, you know, like we mentioned, they're already going through so much. Right. And and there's a there's a couple different ways to do donated food. So in its barest form, it is and I've worked with shelters before that It is literally whatever food is donated gets dumped into a 50-gallon drum and it gets mixed together and that's what's served. So you can imagine that that can create some definite problems between what is dietary indiscretion versus what is true pathology. So the other form of donated food is you ask the community for specific type of donated food. So then essentially instead of your shelter staff having to go to the store and buy food off the shelf, your community is going to the store and buying that food off the shelf that you asked for and donating it to the facility. So at least the consistency is there for that one, whatever the shelter decides, but they're kind of at the, at the whim of the community. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. The difference is there. And gosh, I can imagine that there would be a lot of GI upset in these critters who are being fed this mixed donated food. Of course, as veterinary professionals, we all know the importance of consistent nutrition and all of the problems that can come along with, you know, rapidly changing diets and things like that. So certainly making sure that that we are feeding something consistent so that if there is an intestinal problem, we make sure we're addressing the right problem. Yep. Monitoring daily food intake and consistency is something that I preach to to every shelter that I go to. And fortunately, most shelters are doing this right. 
they're doing it good as best as they can. But I have talked to some shelter leaderships that knew the other side, like knew sheltering, you know, 20, 30 years ago when they were just mixing drums of whatever donated food and talking with one person, one story comes up really well because it directly applies to this. She had broke down the numbers. They were doing completely donated stock. And to be quite honest, it was actually a raw food because that's what they could get donated from their community, which boggled my mind. But that's that's what was available. So you can imagine not only inconsistent diet, but a, a raw diet being fed to a population of animals. Diarrhea was a major issue in their population. And she crunched the numbers and found out that the cost of her working up all these diarrhea cases and the time spent on that, they have a registered veterinary technician that, that works for them. So her time spent on that, it actually was less money to sign up for one of the commercial programs and just buy a consistent food through them. It was less money to purchase food. <laughs> because of all the don because of all the diarrhea that was created by the donated food. Wow, that's a really powerful image right there. Yeah. Yeah, you can <laughs> Maybe image isn't the right word because yeah, I picture I a bunch of dogs with diarrhea. Yeah, I don't <laughs> want to picture those enclosures very. No. <laughs> I agree. But the time probably the time spent I think was the most impactful thing for me there just like wow, you can you can justify adding on to your program because your staff is spending so much time on this. Absolutely. Pretty mind boggling. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. And I, th I think one of the big things that's easily overlooked is the monitoring daily intake. It sounds so blah and boring. And for anybody that's used to feeding their animal ad lib, just throw out a bowl of food and they eat. That's what they do. They're going to stay alive. They eat, right? <laughs> but in a shelter setting, we want to be a little bit more nuanced because we're working with limited resources and not every animal is going to react the same way to what we provide them, right? So we need to keep pretty close tabs on food intake, which is why that's a must in the shelter setting. And I, I did work with one shelter um, who is still learning how to do this, right? It's getting everybody on the same page. It's making sure that people recognize that this is important and this is how it's important in maybe a different way than, than some people would realize. So everybody wants to make sure that food is provided. So fill up the bowl all the way, give it to the animal. And if there's, you know, the little crater from their mouth eating, then, you know, they've eaten some food. Um, I've seen that in several shelters. This particular shelter takes care of a population of a little over 2,000 animals, and they're spending $20,000 a year on food, which is a astronomical number. But it's because so much food was going to waste because nobody knew specifically how much should this animal be getting fed and how much did this animal eat. They just keep the bowls full constantly. So that's another way goes into the herd health thing. How can we use our resources appropriately to help the entirety of our population. So where would where would we find these guidelines? You highlighted all of the musts, which sound incredibly important, but of course, if we want to review the shoulds and, and the rest of it, where can we find the guidelines for the American Association of Shelter Veterinarians? 
Yeah, it's really handy. The Association of Shelter Veterinarians has a webpage, sheltervet.org. And from their drop-down menu, from their links, you can get the Association of Shelter Veterinarians Guidelines for Standards of Care in Animal Shelters, the 2022 edition. And it's just a PDF you can download. Easy peasy. Easy peasy. Everybody should give them a good read. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And I understand that Hills has some educational material that they've put out through the Hills Veterinary Academy that's not specifically directed at veterinarians, but can be used by the whole team to possibly in conjunction with these guidelines to help get some of that nutritional knowledge out there. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something, again, very dependent on the setting that you're in, but the shelters that I work with most closely, we generally do monthly staff, all staff trainings. So that's a really good opportunity for staff to bring up one of those videos and we just all watch it together and we can discuss what's going on. Sure, sure. And kind of drive home those points. Mm -hmm. We've touched a little bit on, you know, these pets are stressed. They're going through a lot. Uh, There's a lot going on for staff. There's a lot of sound. There's, there's just, it's just a lot. And we want to make sure we're paying attention to their nutritional needs. So what are some of the considerations aside from the type of food that we want to keep in mind for shelter pets? Yeah, this this is where this is why I love shelter medicine. It's so much fun because um, I get to work with small animals, right? But really, it's herd management, and it's herd management in a stressful setting. So just take all the challenges. And one of the big things that goes along with physical health is mental well being, and that's something that most shelters are gonna struggle with because, like you said, there's a lot of stressors. We're changing completely these animals' environments don't always know how they're going to respond. So we want to keep them comfortable. So we use food a lot in the shelter setting as a form of enrichment, keeping their brain busy, keeping them occupied so they can stay mentally healthy, which helps us keep them physically healthy as well. The World Health Organization describes health as more than just an absence of disease. And that's why the Association of Shelter Veterinarians, our new guidelines, you'll see it in the first couple pages when you read it, but we've moved to the five domains model. So we're looking at all these aspects that make up health and we're trying to improve them. And a lot of that we can do with food because we cover taste, obviously we're covering, smell, we're covering, to a certain extent, sight, we can use food for that and just keeping that animal entertained and less stressed. So you're going to see in a shelter, we're using food for a lot of enrichment to include puzzle feeders, slow feeders. We're going to use it as a reward to try to do behavior modification. Some shelters are working on basic training as a form of enrichment. We're going to use food for those rewards to get the behaviors that we want. So there's a lot of ways that we're using food in shelters. Yeah, I think that that drives home an important point. You know, when I think of shelters, I would say the herd health is something that's always fascinated me. That seems like a huge challenge and just hats off to you guys for doing that kind of management because it can't be easy. (laughs) And, you know, I, I think I think about it in a really positive light, which, of course, shelters deserve. They're finding these pets homes when they don't have homes. And that's really important. But sometimes I forget about how stressed these animals can become Mm -hmm. when they're in that environment. So what you're saying about using food, I mean, feeding a a consistent food and doing it in an enriching way, it sounds like that can be just a huge quality of life bump for these guys. Yeah, absolutely. We we see so many animals, especially the fearful ones that come in and they just kind of shut down in that stressful environment, right? We get animals that handle stress two big ways. 
one, they're going to shut down and you get your pancake dogs or your, your, you know, airplane ear cats, things like that. Or the more recognized, you're going to get your, your animals that your dogs that lunge at you, your cats that are trying to take swipes at you, things like that. All of those are manifestations of stress. Generally, that's what's happening. And either one we look at, they're so concerned about what's going on around them. They're not eating. Mm -hmm. Right. So not only do we need to use that food in an engaging way, help use that food to decrease their stress, but we need that food to be really tasty because they're certainly not going to eat it if it tastes like cardboard. Sure. <laughs> well, actually dogs might. Dogs yeah, might eat cardboard. Depending on the dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm picturing mine like snacks, 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 snacks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Along those lines, if they're not eating, which I would imagine is something that's pretty common, do you ever have to reach for medical treatments like appetite stimulants? Mm -hmm. The short answer to that is yes. The longer answer is I will reach for appetite stimulants. Oftentimes it's going to be more often in cats. And I'm only going to do that after I've made every accommodation to decrease their stress in their kennel setting. So I'm going to modify where they're at in the building. What is the traffic flow around them? What can they see? They might not like other animals. Do they have a nice big fluffy bed? Are they just uncomfortable in their kennel? What kind of noises are they hearing? Can I do something about that? Uh, can I give them some sort of enrichment, whether it's a food item, a toy that they like, social interaction with other animals or people? I'm going to do all of those things before I start reaching for pharmaceuticals, because usually the base root of it is that they are stressed out. Yeah, that makes sense of, you know, at that point you have, a, if you just reach for the pharmaceuticals at that point, you have them eating and you fix a physiological problem, but the underlying problem is still there. Mm -hmm. So I guess the big question then is how do we, how do we improve appetite in shelter pets? Sounds like the answer to that is reduce their stress. Are there different methods aside from food enrichment that we can use to help reduce stress in these guys? Sure. Um, so there's all sorts of different types of enrichment that we're going to do in shelter that are more than just food. So we're going to use scents. We're going to use noises. Essentially, we're trying to do we're trying to cover every one of those senses each day would be ideal. We're also using quiet times. So it sounds crazy, right? Because you think of a shelter with a building, the staff leave at the end of the day. Well, they have quiet time all night. But they get so amped up during the days, it's it's getting more and more common. You're seeing shelters provide enrichment in the form of quiet times. So they dim the lights and there's nobody allowed in the kennels during certain periods of the day. And that allows the animals time during a stressful day to decompress. And um, we're seeing training um, happening in shelter. We're getting, in addition to more and more veterinarians getting involved in shelter, in sheltering, we're seeing trainers, dog trainers, behaviorists, things like that, getting involved in sheltering, which is really great. And one of the biggest ways we can decrease stress in the shelter that is fairly, relatively speaking, is is new amongst the sheltering world is we don't get them in the shelter. We just bypass that problem completely. So you'll see a push for a lot more communication when people are wanting to surrender their pet. One, is that human-animal bond truly broken or are you up against a wall somehow and you feel your only option is surrendering that pet? Can I not have to intake that animal if I can help you in some way? And we're seeing creative ways to bypass the shelter with owner surrenders doing home-to-home -home adoptions. 
So essentially the shelter can market the animal, but the original owner keeps the animal until it finds a new home, which is kind of fun. Yeah. And then we start seeing really creative ways to at least get a little bit of time outside of the shelter. So you're seeing there's all sorts of cute names for it, but essentially an animal that is adoptable is taken by a foster volunteer, somebody representative of the community, and they go to the beach for the day. They go get Aww. a puppuccino from Starbucks. They go, you know, where wherever. And that's a really nice way to get the animal out of that stressful environment for a little while. Fantastic enrichment, covering all the bases there. And it's really nice marketing because you're getting people from the community out there seeing that animal in a more natural state. That's really cute. I didn't even know that was a thing where you could just mm-hmm. go, you know, like, let me take this adoptable shelter pet and we're just going to go have yep. fun for the day. And like I said, it's relatively new. So not all shelters are doing it, but it's something we're seeing gain more and more traction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I have to say throughout our conversation, I feel like I have, you know, I certainly appreciate the, maybe the lack of nutritional knowledge and resources in shelters because of the wide scope of shelters and, you know, how intense this environment can be and the impact that it it can have on pets' appetite and, you know, how it it can be quite a chore to get pets to eat and eat in a way that's not going to cause vomiting, diarrhea, and and other things like that. I do have to say there's like a, a little bit of me though, where I'm like a little heartbroken for these critters, picturing them in a shelter. So I want to ask you as we're wrapping it up here, can, can you share with us just, you know, one of your success stories that you just keep in your hip pocket that you're like, you know, this was such a good, such a good experience where I really got to, you know, to do some good for this animal or yeah. a group of animals. Yeah. There's, um, gosh, there's, there's, so, I'm trying to like go through all of them. In good. My there's so many, that's what I want to hear. <laughs> there's so many success stories. I, of course, the ones that I'm going to be involved in most heavily are going to be, have a medical slant to them. Right. Of course. Um, Probably there is one behavior one that comes to my mind uh, really well. You're you're gonna laugh when you hear that. <laughs> um, so I I was working with a dog, big dog. He had been surrendered to the shelter. This was his seventh time. He had seven adopters. Oh my gosh! He was about a year and a half old. Oh so, wow! Oh my goodness! Yep. So you can imagine his very very good shelter. Right. Every time he came in, he received enrichment. He received the training. He didn't stay long, very handsome dog, seven adopters. You can imagine the inconsistency there, right? Yeah. And he's a mastiff. He, at his full size, he's about 95 pounds. Goodness. So you have, right. You're, you're picturing this in your head, this right? Year and a half old 95 pound mastiff that's been surrendered seven times. Like sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. <laughs> yep. Uh, the inconsistency in his life and with his training did not lend well to having a good outcome. So the last time he was in our shelter, he got to the point where he looked, he did not look like a stressed out dog. Right. You passed him by in the kennel and he was just laying there usually, but you knew he was stressed because every time you got him out of the kennel, he became reactive to things. And that's something we see a lot in shelter setting. So he would get to the point where he was redirecting his frustration onto a leash. Well, leash is close to a person's hand. So that can be really scary if you're talking about a 95 pound Mastiff, right? So we 
have very trained staff at that shelter and they were uncomfortable getting him out of his kennel. So now he spends even more time in his kennel. Uh, he broke out his stress. We talk about physical and mental health, right? He was so stressed out that he had a flare-up of Demodex. So his stress, even though he did not look stressed in his kennel, his stress was so bad that it was manifesting in a physical way. Yeah, I'm picturing Demodex at 18 months old. Like, you know, it's a fairly, you know, old dog to see that kind of an outbreak. Yep. But his body was becoming that immunocompromised just because he was under this chronic stress. So he got to the point where we were with this history. Nobody wanted to adopt him. We were having to come to the hard decision. Is he an adoption candidate? Oh, by the way, he's also heartworm positive. Um, (laughs) So, so. We were having to make a very hard decision. We knew why he was the way he was. We knew that he could very well be a very loving pet. But in the shelter setting, we were having a very hard time getting him out. So I take him home because that's what you do. And (laughs) we amped up all of his enrichment and just the, the baseline enrichment that you can get in a house is so different than in a shelter, right? So he was under some really grueling enrichment, three-mile walks. It was grueling for both of us. (laughs) But we found ways to get his energy out. I found ways to get his uh, brain de-stressed, to get him doing something that he liked. And I foster failed him. He's still at my house. Oh, (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Even shelter vets foster fail, probably especially shelter vets foster fail. I've I foster failed a few in my time. Yeah, I would imagine it'd be hard not to. What's his name? <laughs> his name's Debo. Debo. Oh my yep. goodness. How old is he now? Oh gosh. He's, he's about six or seven now. Oh good. So you've yep. had him for like several years and yep. he's a couch potato him. now. Yeah. He's, oh, he's so happy you took him home. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of stories like that that are just, you know, medical cases that get turned around and go out behavioral cases that just need a change of scenery. There's, there's a lot of good stories in a shelter setting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So important to remember that, you know, you guys are out there doing so much good for these animals. So Dr. Dressler, thank you so much for coming on and reminding us of the importance of nutritional education, consistency, quality, all of that in a shelter setting, and just the scope of what we're talking about when we're talking, when we're talking about shelter medicine. I think it's a good reminder that there's a lot of support needed in that arena. So thank you. Yeah. Again, thank you for having me. This was fun. I don't know about you, but I am just blown away by the scope of shelter medicine and the importance that food plays not only from a nutritional standpoint, but also such a key factor in environmental enrichment for these guys. Thank you so much to Hills for making this episode possible. Thank you to Dr. Dressler for joining me. And of course, thank you guys for tuning in. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.